Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! Today we are joined by Tristan Bridges. Tristan is an assistant professor of sociology at the College of Brockport, State University of New York. Tristan researches and blogs on issues related to gender, sexuality, inequality, and space at Inequality by Interior Design, and Feminist Reflections, which is the newest community page of the Society Pages. We discussed Tristan's recently published article, A Very Gay Straight, Hybrid Masculinities, Sexual Aesthetics, and the Changing Relationship Between Masculinity and Homophobia, research that he is currently expanding upon in his book project tentatively entitled Othering Other Men, Transformations in Gender and Politics Among Men. Hi, Tristan. Thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. In your research, you look at the seemingly paradoxical practice of straight men labeling aspects of their identity and actions they engage in as gay. In discussing this, you use a few key terms, including hybrid masculinities and sexual aesthetics. I was hoping you could help us out by explaining those terms, um, and perhaps we could start with hybrid masculinities. Okay. Um, hybrid masculinities is, is not actually a term that I coined. Um, I think if, if it goes back to one person, it probably dates back to Michael Mesner's, uh, 1993 article in a special issue of, I think, Theory and Society that was specifically on, um, masculinities. And, um, what, what Mesner was interested in there was, um, the process by which men sort of engage in gender projects that strategically borrow from very distinct configurations of gender practice. So um, hybrid masculinities refer to all of those gender projects that involve the kind of selective incorporation of elements of masculine identities that have really different historical trajectories from those that the men engaging in them um, might be assumed to have. So is that usually... Uh, people from more dominant or traditional masculinities incorporating uh, types of actions that are associated with people with less privilege or power? Um, or does it go the other way as well? Yeah, so, I mean, theoretically, this is something that could go both ways. Um, what, I found, what I found really interesting in this literature, actually, and not everyone uses the term hybrid masculinities, um, but it's a process that you're talking about, this sort of incorporation by... Um, socially and culturally superior and subordinate groups. Um, it could go either way. I think most of what the research on this topic has found is that it tends to go sort of from top to bottom, um, which I think is interesting for a variety of reasons. One is that um, it offers a, a new way of thinking about inequality, I think. We, we don't traditionally think about the effect that subordinate groups have on superordinate groups. Traditionally, sociologists talk about the effects of superordinate groups on those that are subordinate to them. Um, and I think what the literature on hybrid masculinities shows is that superordinate groups kind of have to, dominant groups have to struggle and um, 
and adapt to changes and challenges that come from below as well. And hybrid masculinities, when they take on this form, could be understood as, as potentially one of the ways in which dominant groups sort of maintain their dominance. Okay. So is race a big part of the story as well then? Yeah, I think it can be. I mean, when I when I talk about this research, you know, one of the things that I've been asked about a lot is, well, what about what about white men's selective sort of co-optation of African American hip hop culture or what about all of the whites who were interested in jazz and um and I think that uh race is a big element. I mean, almost almost all of the research that I've looked up um, that I think can be sort of related to the practices that I've found has been associated with a really specific group of men. Um, and they share lots of demographic characteristics with the groups that I study. They're young, they're mostly heterosexual, and they're primarily white. Um, and so young white men are engaging in gender performances that look really different from those that we might be stereotypically used to or those that we might expect of them. And we can do a variety of things with that. We can say, well, does this spell progress? Is masculinity shifting for the better? Um, or is something else going on? So in your article, you said you talk a bit about this divide between those who offer a more celebratory reading and often uh, use the term inclusive masculinity and those who take a more critical stance. So what is really at the crux of that divide? Yeah, I mean, so in in some ways, this is this is a divide that I created. I mean, this is um, you know the the people who uh, who are using what I'm calling hybrid masculinities don't all use that term. Inclusive masculinities is a term that's used by sort of select group of scholars as well. And I'm kind of blending these literatures, but I think that what what the crux of the divide is there's some there's some really interesting transformations taking place. Um, if we just think about sexual inequality for a second, um, you know, for a long time, masculinity scholars have situated homophobia as this like foundational, central element to masculine identity. Um, and this started in the 70s and 80s. Um, since we've been since we've been asking questions about sexual prejudice and sexual inequality on surveys, men have almost always expressed more of it. And so this was one of the original ways that we said homophobia must be a part of masculine gender identity. Um, and this was built on by Michael Kimmel and Raylan Connell and others. Um, but gradually, surveys have been showing that people have been sort of becoming, expressing less sexual prejudice on surveys. We've been seeing more um, gender performances by men that that look a lot less like the sort of um, in-your-face, sexually prejudiced, homophobic, masculine, masculine stereotypes that we're sort of used to in this literature. And I think some people are saying, this is great. The connection between masculinity and homophobia is disappearing. And I suggest that there's, that's, that's possible, but there's a potential to read this in different ways as well that it may not be purely a sign of celebration. Certainly there are things to celebrate, but maybe there's more. So that leads into the next question I had. In the article, you used the term sexual aesthetics. Um, and I was wondering what you mean by that. So sexual aesthetics, sexual aesthetics, I, 
I say that they are, they refer to the cultural and stylistic distinctions that are used to kind of create symbolic boundaries between gay and straight cultures and people. Um, so there are all those, sexual aesthetics refer to all those things that we associate with, let's say, gay and straight culture. So when, uh, when one of my participants told me that he said he could spot a gay dude by the way he walks, when he says that, he's saying that he feels that he has familiarity enough with gay aesthetics that he'd be able to tell someone's sexual identity, understand something about their sexual desires, purely based on a really superficial examination of how they walk, what, what they wear, how they speak, etc. So sexual aesthetics refer to all those things. Um, and I think usually when we, when we talk about sexual aesthetics, we, we think of gay aesthetics, which is, um, which is what I address in the article. But certainly we can think about straight aesthetics as well, things that we do that sort of label us um, as straight as well. Uh, so let's let's move into your uh, article a bit more and, and talk about uh, some of the groups you interacted with. So you observed and interviewed people from three groups of men. Um, the first was a father's rights activist group. Uh, the second was a group of bar regulars. And the third was a pro-feminist group who met to discuss gender and sexual inequality. Do you mind if we focus our conversation on the third group just for the uh, sake of time? Sure. Um, and I do recommend that people who are listening check out the article and read about the research with the first two groups as well. So who makes up the pro-feminist group and how did you end up finding them? Um, the pro-feminist group I found through uh, a college professor who I knew in Virginia. I asked around. I was interested in getting a non-college student um, pro-feminist organization. And so the group that I studied was started by a group of men who all went to college together, three men. Um, and graduated and decided that some of the feminist courses that they took were particularly meaningful to them. And they sort of founded this really small kind of consciousness raising group. And it sort of grew from those three members. And they are, you know, they're a really diverse group. I have people uh, in that group, everything from a music store clerk to computer programmers and graphic designers, um, graduate students, bank tellers, all sorts of different um, uh, men with all sorts of different occupations. But by and large, this is a group who, you know, they're in their late 20s, early 30s. Um, they're almost all white except for two, and they were all straight. Um, and that was something that initially I was sort of interested in, the sort of homogeneity of the group. In the article, I, um, I have a quote from one of the participants I was at his house and we were setting up for a group meeting and I kind of casually asked him during the beginning of my research whether all of the participants in the group identified as heterosexual or whether there was some sexual diversity. Um, and he kind of laughed at me when I asked the question and said, um, yeah, we're all straight. Um, and, then he, and then he followed that up by saying something like, and it's funny because we're all in totally involved in this gay thing. Um, and the gay thing to which he was referring was feminism. And that I found, that I remember finding really particularly interesting early on. Yeah. Um, it's only later that I recognized that they were using the term gay in, in ways that kind of simultaneously sounded progressive and regressive. <laughs> yeah. And it's a funny thing to label as, as gay when they're looking at, I mean, it's explicitly about the rights of women, right? That's right. 
Okay. And is was the group set up as as being a boys club or is there an idea that's open for women to join and they just don't or Yeah, so this is a group that is set up for uh, it's a space for men to identify how they participate in gender and sexual inequality. So it's a space for men to kind of better themselves, but they also um, did a lot of outreach work. So it was with this group, for instance, that I first started studying Walk a Mile in Her Shoes marches. They don't actually host a march, but they volunteer for an organization um, that does host a march. And they do that every year. And they have a variety of things like this where they actually kind of participate in some activist endeavors by kind of offering helping hands. So, so let's talk a bit more about the use of the term gay by this group. How did the group bring up the idea of a gay aesthetic? And what did they mean by gay when they were using that term? Yeah, well, um, you know, I think they meant a lot of things. Um, one thing that I found many of the members were eager to tell me and to tell each other was that they did not mind being called gay. That, that that didn't hurt their feelings. I'm actually um, working on an article right now that sort of addresses this, that um, every once in a while at group meetings, these kind of mini contests would start um, between members of, of this group in particular, whereby they someone would share a story of having been mistaken for gay. And in this group, the way to receive status for sharing that story would be to explain to everyone how that didn't bother you. Um, and if you if you shared with everyone that someone thought I was gay and I let everyone know that I didn't care that they thought that, that was sort of a way of receiving a little bit of social status. So being marked as gay was seen as a source of pride and not just the act of not caring, right? Yeah, and I kind of, I came to find over the year that I studied that group that I think that that identification or that misidentification, this group actually kind of turned that into, at least with one another, a kind of form of symbolic feminist currency, whereby they sought to kind of try to prove that they were on the quote unquote right side, that they were true feminists, that they couldn't possibly be the wrong kind of man look at this, people even assume I'm gay even though I'm not. That seems like a real reversal of the literature you were discussing earlier, uh, the people like Kimler Connell, where the mark of masculinity or being a proper man was to be explicitly not gay. That's right, yeah. we. I mean, being being sexually illegible is not something that has historically been found <laughs> in most of the research on masculinity to be some to be a source of sort of heterosexual men's pride right but in this group in this setting it functioned that way did it seem like the men were trying to say well i'm so tough that i don't care i think there are elements of that you know one of the men in that group when i was talking with him about masculinities and and this was an interesting group to study because many of them were sort of very well-read or superficially well-read, I guess is maybe better said, on gender. So they had a lot of lingo. You know, some of them would quote Judith Butler at me or um, offer kind of interpretations of pretty um, sophisticated gender theory yeah. very casually. And one of them said when I was asking about uh, masculinity in an interview, he said, masculinity is sort of the not a performance performance. Um, and I thought it was such an interesting way of talking about masculinity that he was sort of explaining that if you look like you're trying, 
you're failing. Um, and so I think that this, that sort of them saying that they were uh, presumed gay by others and that they didn't care about it, showing that you, not, that you don't care, that sort of gendered nonchalance is actually, I think, a form of gender performance. Um, and it's one that is actually kind of old and it's been historically associated with masculinity before. So I don't think that, I think if you, if you stop thinking about gay and start thinking about the fact that they just are not caring and they're sort of forming this kind of gendered aloofness, I think that it, it starts to look a lot more like masculinities that we're pretty used to. I see. So you mentioned that the majority of the group was white. Um, was there any sort of raced element to what was perceived as a gay aesthetic or, or a straight aesthetic? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, I think the in the article, I, for, I focus a little bit more on the kind of classed relationship that gay aesthetics seem to have when men brought them up. Um, but I think when we think about the elements that are stereotypically associated with gay men's culture, they feel like white elements and they often sound like upper class elements. You know, in, um, in Jose Esteban Munoz's book, uh, Disidentifications on Queers of Color, he, he has this really interesting discussion at one point when he discusses a documentary on black gay men, um, where they uh, talk about the um, experience of moving to San Francisco to kind of come out in the gay scene. And it was colloquially referred to as something like going vanilla. That gay culture, I think, has, has a reputation of being white. Um, um, but more than that, it, what, I, when, what I found, I think I found that it was kind of associated with really classed elements that a lot of times, you know, men in my study and all the um, groups would identify things like um, knowledge of wine as gay or, um, you know, um, interest in literature as gay or sort of upper class tastes were defined as sort of colloquially defined as gay. In the article, you don't read these performances and these invocations of a gay aesthetic as a sign of progress and a reason for real celebration. Why not? Well, I think that they, I think that there are elements to celebrate in what I found. I mean, I think that one thing that we can celebrate is that, um, you know, these men are clearly um, don't believe that they would receive status for sort of gay bashing, um, uh, at least in the pro-feminist group. Um, in the other two groups, that might be a little bit more complicated. But in the pro-feminist group, I think that in some ways it shows that um, there's an interest in standing on the right side of sexual equality and that speaking very highly of you as a man. I don't read them as a sign of progress, though, because I think that implicit in this project is a process whereby systems of inequality end up getting kind of concealed in new ways. And this is what the majority of the research on hybrid masculinities that, that actually specifically utilizes that term has found, that hybrid masculinities often work in ways that are sort of strategic adaptations to transformations in systems of social inequality, um, whereby historically privileged groups end up collecting new forms of privilege as they adapt to kind of changing circumstances. And I think that um, 
straight men's use of gay aesthetics in this way ends up working like this. So just to give an example from the pro-feminist group, you know, one thing that I was really interested in was um, when I studied that group, whether these men thought they were on the, that, um, you know, how these men understood themselves. And lots of them understood that they were the right kind of men and that they were fighting the right fight. And that if we really wanted to identify where gender inequality was, it was with other groups of men, but not them. Um, and so identifying aspects of themselves as gay was a way that this group of men who occupy all sorts of identity categories that are um, privileged, they're white, they're young, they're straight, um, but they were able to kind of shift the spotlight on that privilege onto others by saying, well, I might be these things, but I'm gay, or I, I look gay, or I act gay, and that makes me different from whatever you might think about my masculinity. So it sort of shifts our attention onto other groups. And I think that in the process of doing that, it ends up throwing under the bus groups of men who've been historically subordinated and marginalized for a variety of other reasons. So it ended up being a safe space to talk about privilege, but almost to validate with each other that they're not the one, they're not the problem, or they're not the ones that are really reinforcing the privilege? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, the group sort of oscillated between structural and individual level understandings of uh, inequality and privilege. And I think that when they discussed themselves, they were very, uh, you know, they were nervous to kind of identify that they, in fact, were privileged and that there was nothing they could do about it. So, for instance, um, at one of the group meetings, and different members got to host group meetings each week. They volunteered for that, and whoever hosted that meeting got to choose a topic. And then they went around, and um, one of the first things they did at the meeting is people would share stories related to that, related to that topic. Um, and one of the group meetings was on the gender wage gap and what they could do about it. Um, and at the end of that meeting they arrived at the conclusion that what really what you need to do is when you are offered those extra wages for being a man, you should turn them down. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because it relied on an understanding of privilege as though when men are receiving gender privilege, they recognize it immediately and that the bad men are the ones who just simply don't turn their back on those moments. Um, and they're good men because they would be able to, right? How do you know when you receive a promotion if it's because of your gender, or your race, sexuality? So uh, as you were mentioning earlier, the group is, or at least some people in the group are pretty well read and they have a sense of what academia is. They probably have a general idea of what research is. How did they respond to you? Were, was your interest a source of pride? Were they excited or were they hesitant at all? Yeah, this group was really excited that I was studying them. Um, and I think I, I had that experience with actually all three groups of men. Um, but this group, from the very beginning, um, being considered worthy of study, I think was really exciting for them. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think they saw us as allied. It was something that sort of establishing rapport with this group was easier than with the other two groups, definitely. Um, Right off the bat, I think they felt like that we shared a lot in common and that, um, so 
I, I tried to meet with uh, men in each of the three groups outside of group meetings as well. So I hung out with them at home. I tried to do work visits, hang out with their friends and families, etc. And with this group, that was really easy. I mean, I had to draw lines and say, okay, thank you. I actually cannot come to any more things today. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so as a final question, this is a bit outside the scope of the article, but it's come up a few times in our conversation. Uh, sociologists have a lot to say about other types of cultural co-option, and we talked a little bit more earlier about race. I'm wondering what we can learn from the similarities or differences between what you saw with these groups and then those other studies that you, you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested in that as well. I think... Um... Part of that kind of depends on whether or not this hybrid masculinity ends up becoming more of a defined literature than it is right now. Um, after I wrote this article, C.J. Pascal and I wrote another article that's published at um, Sociology Compass on hybrid masculinities, and it's just sort of a review of all of the research that we think might be under that sort of umbrella term. Um, and so we were able to collect studies that had to do with racial co-optation, class co-optation, sexual co-optation, gendered co-optation. And I think that um, that might be a good place for people to start. But I do think that um, I think that these processes are definitely related to one another. Um, I think that it's it's a raced, classed, gendered, sexualized project. And while I kind of primarily look at gender and sexual dynamics um, in my article, there are certainly race and class elements there that are worthy of more investigation. That was a great conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. <laughs>